Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome, and thanks very, very much for joining us today. Now, I'm sitting in Vancouver right now, but I just got off the Skype phone with James Ferrer and Andrew Fields, who are in Tokyo right now, to talk about their new um, co-authored book, Shanghai Nightscapes, a nocturnal biography of a global city. This came out in 2015 with the University of Chicago Press. And it's a really, really interesting book that blends history, ethnography, sociology. Um, it blends uh, oral history interviews and all kinds of really fascinating materials into a story that takes us into a kind of 20th century history of nightscapes, nightlife, dancing, jazz, music, drinking, the people who were doing this, the groups who were doing this, the spaces in which this was happening all in Shanghai. So it's a really fascinating story. It's a, a, an extensive interview, so I'll let you get right to it. But I'll just say there's a lot in here for any readers who are particularly interested in jazz, in dancing, in drinking, um, and in kind of in general spaces of convivial and social life, and in the ways that those spaces are both produced by and also help produce transformations in in ways that class structures play out, transformations in the ways of performing and practicing sexuality, um, so social identity, gender identity, and all kinds of other identities, all in the space of this really fascinating city and its nightscapes and night spaces. So thanks very much for listening. Um, I'm, as ever, very grateful for your listening and for your support, and I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. And thanks again to James and Andrew for navigating the time difference and also making it such a pleasure um, to do a three-person interview. Enjoy. I'm here today to talk with James Ferrer and Andrew Field about their new book, Shanghai Nightscapes. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, both of you, and thanks very much for making the time to talk with me today, for writing a really fascinating book, and for navigating this time difference that we're working um, on right now. Welcome to the channel. Thank you, Carla. Uh, thank you. So, Andrew, can you start us off? And I know we've talked before for the channel, but maybe by reminding um, listeners how you came to the field. Um, how did you come to work on China and why the history of modern China? Well, I started my uh, China journey when I was a freshman at Dartmouth College studying Chinese language. I just decided to take it on a whim, and that brought me to Taiwan, and then uh, for a trip to mainland China in 1988. And uh, after that, I was hooked, and you know, I became an Asian Studies major in college, and then I went on to grad school and became a historian of of China. I just find the uh, you know the, the the depth and the layers of culture and history uh, fascinating, as as does any other China scholar. 
So, James, how did you come to work on China? And you work in sociology, is that right? That's right. So I'm a, I'm a sociologist, and my journey, journey to China was、um, sort of via Europe and、um, the Middle East, and then I ended up in Taiwan at the end of a long trip with no money. Decided to learn Chinese.、Um, so my my perspective on Taiwan and later on China was always, and I think remains a, a comparative one, where I'm、uh, I'm always impressed with the sort of peculiar things that seem to be going on in, in, in the place. And I was I, I became very interested in what I saw at the time as the sort of youth cultural revolution in Taiwan,、uh, and then later on the sexual re-、uh, revolution or sexual opening up in China. And so that's how I, I got interested in、uh, in studying sociology in China. And James, while we're、um, with you right now, why don't we just stay with you? How did you come to work on Shanghai in particular and Shanghai nightscapes? Like, what brought you to this project? So I I did my dissertation work in Shanghai, and the story of that is a real typical Shanghai story. I had a good friend in graduate school at the University of Chicago who was from Shanghai, and. I told him I'm going to Tianjin to do my research, and he said, "Oh no, you can't go there. It's a terrible place. You have to go to Shanghai. It's the only place to do research." And later on, of course, I realized that every Shanghainese thinks that Shanghai is the only place to go. So I landed in Shanghai, and I did my dissertation on on youth culture and、uh, sexuality. And as part of that, I, I got interested in the emerging、uh, nightlife scene. And part of my first book called "Opening Up" is is includes、uh, some Some、uh, a section, really, a chapter on 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 the clubbing and dance scene of the 1990s.、Mm-hmm. So, Andrew, what brought you to this particular topic? Well, when I was searching around for a dissertation topic、um, in my early years of grad school,、um, I was very interested in music. I was always I was always really interested in in music, and I was listening to a lot of Chinese pop music at that time, and. I was kind of a fan of、uh, karaoke, and and it was a great way to, to learn the language and culture. And、uh, I kind of stumbled upon these、uh, these old songs from the 1930s that were being reissued、um, by Pate Records, and they really intrigued me. And I decided I wanted to delve into the source of that and find out, you know, where this this、uh, this pop music from from 1930s China came from. And of course, it came from Shanghai. And then、uh, that led me to、uh, to look at the whole milieu in in which that music was being created and performed, and that led me to the cabarets of of nineteen twenties and thirties Shanghai, and that that was the the dawn of my dissertation, which became my first book.、Mm-hmm. So this book is actually actively collaboratively written. You're both、um, you're not co-editors; you're co-authors of the book, and still. Um, in academia right now, for a lot of humanities and social sciences fields,、um, certainly for history, co-authored work still tends to be relatively unusual. And so,、um, I'd love to hear a little bit about the process and sort of how this co-writing and co-authorship、uh, collaborative process worked for you both. Now, you mentioned early in the book that it's the book is actually the fruit of two decades,、um, around two decades, right, of collaborative work. So let's talk a little bit. About that process. So, first of all, at what point did you decide to write together, and at what point did you decide that what you were going to write together was going to be a book? Andrew,、uh, maybe we'll start with you. Well, in our in our book, in the introduction to Shanghai Nightscapes, we 
we mentioned that uh, we first met in a bar in 1996, and we were actually introduced by a mutual friend who, who uh, knew that we were both kind of researching topics that were of mutual interest. So James was doing his, his research on <clears throat> social dance halls and discos in eight, 1980s and 90s Shanghai, and I was doing my research on the, the cabaret industry. <clears throat> Excuse me. I was doing my research on the cabaret industry of 1930s Shanghai. So even back then, we we thought about you know we we talked about collaborating together in the future on a project. Um, and to the best of my recollection, that really started happening in the early 2000s. Um, and we actually started out with it with an edited volume that we were working on on, on um, Chinese nightlife, which turned into a special journal issue. Um, and in the course of that, we just decided, hey, let's, let's take our materials and, and write a book on Shanghai. Um, by that time, James had already published his book, Opening Up, and I was well on my way to publishing my first book. So we kind of, we kind of had to get those projects out of the way. Uh, but in the meantime, we were doing a lot of work on, on this project. And uh, I think James can take it over from there. Yeah, I, I think for for scholars in particular, it, it, it's interesting. To, I mean, we started out with a, a more a more of a, a typical pattern, which is trying to edit a, a book together. And um, even though we did get a special issue out of it, the, the frustration with that was that we thought we really had a lot more to say than – uh, as a, as a, as a, as a pair, then we could say in these separate essays. So we took the plunge in um, in um, writing this book, and what uh, it took a lot more effort, a lot longer than we probably ever imagined. But but the really positive side of it was that I think in the process that uh, Andrew, I think, really became a, an ethnographer, and I, I became a historian. So that. Um, in the collaboration, we, we worked on every chapter and uh, really took each other's roles uh, that, that in, a, in a way that wouldn't have been possible, I think, 20 years earlier, or we wouldn't have foreseen 20 years earlier. So let's talk about, um, just very briefly before we actually dive in to the book, let's talk about some of that collaborative process um, in terms of the nuts and bolts, right? So writing together. Um, you just uh, I'm, I'm gathering from what you just mentioned that you both um, worked on all of the chapters, right? So what did that practical process look like? Were you um, using a Google Doc? I mean, were you um, going uh, and sharing files over email? Were you physically in the same place for any of this? Can you talk a little bit about just the physicality and the practical aspects of the process? And Andrew, maybe we'll start with you. Sure. Oh, yeah. I mean, we all of the above. Every, every resource <laughs> and technology that was at our disposal, because you know, for the past uh, eight years that we've been working consistently on this project, I've been living in Shanghai, which, of course, is a great advantage in terms of being on the ground of where we're researching. And James has been based here at uh, Sophia University, where we are right now in Tokyo, for 17 years. So, um, you know, I, w- w- we were collaborating from uh, two different cities now, James would, would fly quite often to Shanghai to do research. So whenever he was in Shanghai, we had very intense bouts of research and writing uh, together. But then uh, it was all about emails. It was about, uh, you know, Google Docs, Dropbox, um, sending files back and forth, correcting each other's <laughs> files. And 
but and somehow it all came together. It was it was quite an amazing process of collaboration. James, did you want to add anything? Yeah, I, I would say that it it also in some ways, even though I, I feel we're both happy with the result, I think in some ways it probably took longer than writing the book would have taken if we'd done it each individually because we did go back on so many drafts because when you when you have two people we you see things somewhat differently, you change each other's work. But the advantage of that is you also find, I think, biases or mistakes or what you might perceive as biases or mistakes and and then uh, are able to correct each other. Well, I'm glad then um, for any collaborators that I work with in the future because, of course, I'm never going to produce any biases or mistakes, right? So it'll be super easy <laughs> for any potential collaborators out there um, just, you know, hook me up, um, let's do this. Okay, so let's actually talk about uh, the book itself and really get into it. Let's get into the first chapter. Now, early on, um, the both of you lay out some of the major questions that the book is going to explore and answer, and I'll just kind of lay out some of those at the beginning so that listeners kind of know um, where we're going. So one of the first uh, questions or groups of questions, how did Shanghai's Chinese population first learn to dance in the 1920s? Why did they enthusiastically pick it up again in the 1980s? And more recently, why have mainstream Shanghai clubs that mostly cater to Chinese customers sidelined this practice? Another set of questions revolves around jazz. Why has jazz played such an enduring role in Shanghai? And finally, and we'll get to this by the end of the book and the end of our conversation, how might we understand Shanghai's nightlife scenes as social and sexual contact zones? So these just lay out some of the major threads that we'll be following um, as we follow uh, the chapters of the book. So let's start, though, um, at the beginning uh, by laying out and talking a little bit about one of the major concepts here. And that is a concept that might sound um, kind of uh, that listeners might take for granted, but that I think is clear early in the book that we can't really take for granted. And that's the idea of nightlife. So let's talk about that. How are you guys conceptualizing nightlife? For the purpose of the book, because you say very clearly that nightlife is not just social activities that happen at night. And what is cosmopolitan um, and what's important about the cosmopolitanism of the nightlife that you're describing here? And um, Andrew, perhaps we'll start with you. Sure. Um, Yeah. And it is a historical question, after all, because there is a... um, a history to the to the word nightlife and how it was used. And in my research for my first book, Shanghai's Dancing World, um, I did at one point go through the New York Times, and I discovered that the term nightlife really emerged in the 1920s as a very distinct, you know, it lost the hyphen, and it became a very distinctive uh, term in American culture. And that was associated with the jazz age, and it was associated with, um, the cabarets and and jazz bands and dancing the foxtrot in the Charleston it it really kind of came into a term in in, in its own. Um, you can probably trace its origins even earlier to the the pre World War One period in New York, as Louis Ehrenberg does in in his book uh, on New York nightlife, stepping out. <clears throat> But it really, it really comes of its own in the 1920s, and it's associated with this culture of the jazz age, which is going out for a night of fun, going to clubs, dancing, drinking the night away, and, of course, socializing. 
And of course, it was also associated with this, what was then even then perceived as a kind of a sexual revolution with women stepping out on their own and meeting men. <clears throat> and so that's kind of the basic definition of nightlife that we use in our book. Um, it's, uh, you know, so nightlife is composed of, of these urban uh, commercial and social spaces where people congregate in, in larger numbers and socialize and mingle with strangers, usually with drinking and dancing being kind of the primary lubricants for that socialization. And so this happens in large, uh, certainly in the big American cities um, in, in, in the 1920s and beyond, and in other world cities as well. The Jazz Age was really a global movement. Um, so, you know, you, you saw this kind of nightlife emerging in Tokyo and in Manila and then in, in Shanghai, of course. Um, so that, that's kind of the historical background uh, to the term. Do you, would you like to add anything, James? No, I, I think that that kind of covers both the definition and, and, and the history of the term. Um, to get on to the other topic of cosmopolitanism, I think we, we see this as really a, a book about Shanghai and about a city. And, um, and, and in a sense, maybe in a larger sense, comparatively about global cities. And what makes the nightlife in a, in a city like Shanghai, I think, um, special and, and, and perhaps more worth studying is that it's not really just a, a local culture, but it's a global culture. It's a place where this one city connects with a lot of other cities. And, and throughout the book, uh, really, the, the story is about the transnational nature of these local spaces and how each local space is connected to places in New York or places in, in Tokyo or Hong Kong or, or Taiwan. And the other side of this is that each of these spaces is also a mixing, a, a space of, of social mixing, not just between, not just among Chinese people or among Shanghainese people, but also amongst people from a lot of different places. And the ideas and uh, forms of musical expression and dance and the activities in these spaces are, are all hybrid and uh, in nature. So as we move further into the book, um, as we move into chapters two, three, and four, these chapters look at the history of social dance and dancing scenes in Shanghai. Now, they show, among other things, how, in the words of the book, cultures of partnered social dance changed with each of the great social revolutions of the 20th century, and we'll talk about some of them. The chapters also look very carefully at class structures and at the changes in class uh, structures that actually uh, followed and helped generate some of these changes in dance and social dance um, in Shanghai. So this actually brings us into the first of what you identify as three major stages of the Shanghai nightlife, and this brings us into the 1920s and the 1930s. So Shanghai in this period became internationally famous as uh, what the book calls a sinful city of jazz age nightlife. So, um, Andrew, can you tell us a little bit about this? And specifically, um, can you talk about the rise of the Chinese dance madness in Shanghai? What do we need to understand about dance madness um, and anything associated with it in this period to be able to follow that through to understand the changes that are going to happen as we move to the next chapters? Sure. Well, in, in my first book, I, you know, in researching my dissertation and first book, it became very clear to me, uh, looking at uh, newspapers and other other documents from the 1920s, that 
the year 1927 was this big watershed period, uh, not just for Chinese history, because that was the nationalist revolution that uh, catapulted Chiang Kai-shek and the nationalist government to power in Nanjing. Uh, but coincidentally, it was also the rise of Chinese dance madness. Um, and so that, that was one of the major you know, subjects of my first book. And that's how we ground our book, Shanghai Nightscapes. Um, prior to that time, um, the Jazz Age was, was almost exclusively being enjoyed by Westerners and Japanese um, who were living in, in Shanghai. And it was catalyzed by the Russians who, who came to Shanghai by the thousands after the uh, October Revolution of 1917, many of them fleeing this Bolshevik Revolution in Russia um, and, and so in the 1920s, you had ballrooms and cabarets in Shanghai that were full of, of Westerners and a, and a few Asian people, a few, uh, a few uh, elite Chinese. But by and large, it was a, a culture that was either unknown or shunned by Chinese society and even considered very immoral uh, by, by the Confucian standards of, of the day. But at that time, China was experiencing the May 4th movement, and there was a lot of uh, interest in Western culture and in, in modernity in general, um, in, in the modern. And so dancing became associated with the modern. Um, jazz musicians, I tell this story in the book, um, were forced, well, or at least compelled to um, change the, the style of their music to to uh, kind of cater to Chinese tastes. So you have the emergence of cinified jazz. And lo and behold, in around 1927, Chinese customers started crowding into the dance halls and the ballrooms, and they, and they were even elbowing the foreigners off their own dance floors, according to some accounts of that age. So that was really the beginning of Chinese dance madness, and people thought it might be a passing fad. But in fact, dancing became the dominant form of nighttime entertainment in Shanghai for the next 20 years. And it probably would have continued to be so if it had not been for either the ravages of, well, you could say that the uh, the, the wartime era when Japan, when Japan uh, took over that part of China even catalyzed the, uh, the whole industry further. Um, but, uh, you know, ultimately it was the communist revolution that kind of shut it down. But the, the momentum that had started in the 1920s probably would have continued on uh, for quite some time. And one of the things that we argue in our book is that, you know, dancing becomes the kind of signal social activity for Shanghainese people um, all the way through the 20th century. Shanghai was a dancing city. And, and you know, with, with, the, with the notable exception of the Mao years when dance, social dancing was suppressed. Mm-hmm. James, did you want to add anything? Well, I mean, for the period from the 1920s and 30s, um, you know, the, the peculiar thing about dancing in Shanghai was that it was, it was led to a large extent by a, a practice that in the, in the U.S. was called the taxi dance hall. And this was where, you, where women were often paid as dance hostesses. And, and this is something that I think is peculiar really to that period in the book where even though you have uh, middle class women or bourgeois women in Shanghai learning to dance, and, uh, especially in places like in universities, uh, the, the mainstream dance clubs or the cheaper dance clubs all involve these, these hostesses. And that, that I think characterizes that first period. 
of dance culture that you that you just mentioned. So this chapter, chapter two, also introduces aspects of what's going on here that we're going to see transforming over the next several chapters. And that's um, and we won't talk about this in any detail so that we can move on to those chapters. But um, the chapter talks a lot about the spaces in which this dancing was happening. And um, James, as you just alluded to now with the taxi girls and then the hostesses, the people um, and really the gendering of use of and creation of those spaces um, in ways that become really interestingly complex um, as we go through the book. Now, if that was the first um, kind of stage in Shanghai nightlife, we move to the second stage when we move to the next chapter. Now, this second stage of Shanghai nightlife um, takes us into the wartime and immediate post-war revolutionary era. And here we see a lot of really interesting things happening and some really interesting sources being brought to bear in understanding um, these changes. So you talk about, um, for example, the ways that in the late 1940s, the nationalist government under Chiang Kai-shek tries and, and ultimately fails to shut down the dance industry in Shanghai. And there's a campaign in 1947 uh, to ban dancing. You also talk about what's happening in the mid-1950s. Now, this is really, really fascinating. Um, the new uh, Chinese Communist Party government succeeds in closing the cabarets, but work and school unit dance parties flourish until about 1957. And in the course of describing this for us, you introduce us to some really interesting people who you interviewed um, for the uh, purpose of the book. So one of them is this photographer who describes private home uh, dance parties that involved soaking cloth and water to like plug up the cracks in the doors and the windows so that no one would hear. Um, so I want to hear like all about this, or at least <laughs> at least a little about this, right, given the time that we had. Um, James, perhaps um, we can start with you. Can you talk a little bit about not just what's happening in this period here, right, the mid-1950s, but also um, your experience in uh, doing the interviews to understand this period and for you, what were some of the most interesting aspects of those interviews? All right. So this was, for me, the, the most fun in, in this book was uh, in that I had been an ethnographer, really, and focusing mostly on things that, were, that I could observe myself. And so in working on this, I, 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 I learned the, uh, together with Andrew, really, we did some of the, the interviews together, in fact. Uh, but uh, we, we did these uh, oral history interviews where we would meet these um, Lao uh, these old, uh, these old um, Shanghai gentlemen who were, who had been part of this um, culture of, of dancing and jazz in the nineteen, usually in the nineteen forties. And we also, I also though found another group that was even larger. And these are these are just family friends, really, who were college students and high school students in the nineteen fifties. And so interviewing these people we really realized that this culture of, of dancing, especially, and to some extent jazz as well, had survived into the 1950s. And there was a period of, of flourishing in the, in the, in the, in the immediate uh, early years of, uh, of the Communist Party's takeover of Shanghai, in which, um, um, to a large extent, this was, organized, this was partly organized through the Communist Party Youth League, and they would organize dances, and these were extremely popular. Uh, and one document that I, that that I found in the in the archives uh, was that really was at the very end of this period when the Communist Party was deci- had decided and uh, that this was a form of bourgeois decadence that needed to be uh, stopped. 
in the nineteen in the in the late fifties was a document that that pointed out that that the um, Communist Youth League uh, organizers had been so enthusiastically organizing dance parties to the extent that this was the only activity that they were organizing in some cases, and some of them had uh, taken up the idea that uh, that the attempts to stop this were in fact uh, a form of uh, revisionism. So, so there were there was a there was resistance against uh, against the the, um, the banning of dancing, but uh, but of course, ultimately, dancing by 1958 had been thoroughly labeled a bourgeois practice, and and the, and the story that you just mentioned of the photographer, and, and we interviewed, I interviewed him actually for an, another project that I was working on, and uh, and he came up with these stories about uh, about dancing and also uh, Western style dining in, in their home. And and these really were underground practices. So so dancing survived, and and um, amongst uh, the the really older crowd who, who sometimes kept dancing alive, but also amongst some of these children of the bourgeoisie. In this case, people who really hadn't experienced it in the forties, but had picked it up from the older generation. Andrew, did you want to speak to these issues? <clears throat> well, you know, I, th- I think it, obviously the uh, the communist revolution was a major watershed in Chinese history. And uh, so we're, we're taking, you know, we're looking at a century of Chinese history full of revolutions and upheavals and, and where, you know, a, a lot of scholars uh, very legitimately are focused on the, the political culture. Uh, we find that, that looking at the entertainment culture and especially um, the practice of dancing tells you a lot about those trans, transformations that China underwent. And what was interesting that James just explained is that there was a moment when when the revolution was going in perhaps a different direction, um, and and then everything kind of came crashing down in a way during the anti-rightist movement in 1957. Um, you know, there's there's nothing per se uh, about social social dancing that that would necessarily go against the revolutionary uh, motives of, of the Communist Party. Um, it, it even introduced a kind of equality to, to, um, to the practice because the, the, the hostesses were eradicated, right? They were repurposed during the 1950s. And so rather than having a kind of a, what was kind of a commercial sex trade with these dance hostesses, um, they kind of leveled the playing field. You know, this was a period when women were being liberated. And so the idea of a woman stepping out onto the dance floor as, as a liberated woman kind of leading her own life, it didn't necessarily contradict the goals of the revolution. Um, but certainly it took another turn a, after, you know, 57, 58, and, and dancing, social dancing was banned, except very famously if you were um, Mao himself, or Joe Lai or their or the senior cadres, then you could hold your own private dance parties, um, and there's there's much documentation of that. Um, so, but the the point is, um, despite that, when dancing returned in the 1980s, as as James can tell you in much more detail than I can, because he really researched this this subject, um, it was kind of on a level playing field. It was a, it was socialist. Uh, dance halls that reemerged in the 1980s, where men and women went there kind of as equals. I, I say kind of because you have to qualify this a bit, but um, certainly on a much more uh, level uh, basis than than they did when the women were were paid hostesses. 
And the ages of the women were much different as well, because the average age of a hostess was 15 to 20. Well, technically speaking, they had to start when they were 16 because of the, the rules of, of the city. Um, but, you know, 16 to 20 was kind of the, the, the age span of a hostess. Um, the women who were going to the social dance halls in the 1980s were in their 20s, 30s, 40s, and beyond. So it was a much different uh, period for in the history of social dancing. So as we move um, into this later period, and I'll also mention um, for listeners before we get there, though, that the chapter we were just talking about, even though we won't have time to talk about it in any detail, also takes us um, into the periods after the 1950s, right? Um, We're sort of at the end and beyond. So um, the chapter looks at what's happening between the Great Leap Forward and Cultural Revolution eras, and it also takes us into what's happening um, under Deng Xiaoping um, as we enter into the reform era. But we also, from here, move to another really fascinating part of the story when we move to the next chapter. And this is a chapter that looks at the emergence of a new cosmopolitan clubbing scene um, or new uh, a plurality of scenes in Shanghai. So one of the things that you talk about in this chapter um, is the importance or the significance of Hong Kong-style DJing, right? So this is a chapter that's going to take us into clubs and clubbing and DJs, and it's super, super interesting. Um, but it begins by talking about the importance of Hong Kong to what's happening here and of Hong Kong-style um, in terms of the DJ culture of this period. Um, so, uh, James, uh, would you maybe talk a little bit about that for us? What's going on in, in terms of you know, Hong Kong, Hong Kong style DJing and um, what's happening in the club scene in this period. So this was um, really one of the scenes that I had um, had happened upon in, in, the, in the 1990s when I arrived in Shanghai was the was kind of the big, not the necessarily the absolute beginnings, but the early, relatively early phases of this disco culture in Shanghai starting in 1993. And uh, when I got there. And, and this was, um, and but later on, it really took us to doing a lot of interviews, and, and just really recently, and, and meeting some of these DJs in Shanghai who had stayed on. And this was a fascinating a part of the a part of the research for for me because I realized, and I think we we both realized that early on, that in the 1980s, and especially already back in the 1970s, Hong Kong had become a a real epicenter of. Uh, Club culture and musical culture in, in all of for all of East Asia, not just for for the mainland, but also for the for the rest of the region. And so, uh, Hong Kong had a had a set of very famous discos in the nineteen seventies, and I think it'd make a great book for somebody to go back and look at the, at this history in Hong Kong. So, in some ways, according to our Hong Kong informants, is this was sort of winding down in Hong Kong in the nineteen eighties. This was people saw the opportunity in China, so they, they some of the DJs and also even some of the equipment that had been used in Hong Kong. They moved it up to the mainland, and, and disco culture comes to the mainland in the 1980s together with, with a very ho- strong Hong Kong flavor. And this is, uh, this is influenced uh, by some of the DJs in Hong Kong who had been earlier on radio DJs and trained by radio DJs. So there was a lot of chatting, a lot of talking, uh, a lot of directing of the audience. And so the DJ was, um, was a kind of a leader teaching the, the, the young people really about what this music was about and about how to dance. And they would also hire these dance leaders who would dance for the people on the floor to show them how to dance. But these were also very um, big open spaces, and they were largely run in the 1980s as, as dance halls, in a sense. So you buy a ticket, which would be very expensive, 
but you would get in and you'd be on this big floor and everybody would be dancing together. So it was still a, a, a big culture of, of social dance, but the forms of dance had changed. They were now these sort of loose, uh, free-form disco dancing uh, that, that, had, uh, that, had, that was heavily influenced really by what was going on uh, in other cities in the world. And that, that, that was the scene that I think you could say characterized the 1990s in Shanghai. Absolutely. And that, you know, that's when James first arrived in, what, 1993? And I arrived three years later in 96. And so, you know, I kind of uh, caught the height of that era as well. And there were these big uh, discos like Total Disco and New York, New York. Um, And some some of the discos associated with the big hotels like the Galaxy and the Rainbow and... Rainbow Galaxy was it? Mm-hmm. Um, the Casablanca, and and something you know similar was going on in Beijing at the time. I spent actually half a year in Beijing at that time too, um, and and these were just big discos where everybody was on the dance floor. It was a huge dance floor. Everybody was kind of together in one big mad dancing crowd, and that was the culture of the time. And it was a really fascinating culture to be thrown into, especially if you're if you're researching the equivalent in the 1930s as I was. Um, but keep in mind also that at that time there were what 1,500 dance halls registered in Shanghai, and most of those were these social dance halls that the, the Shanghai working classes were were frequenting, which were much much simpler uh, spaces. You know, they could have been built out of a out of a cafeteria in a, in a factory or, you know, just uh, very simple spaces that, um, that uh, catered to the Shanghai, you know, neighborhood people in uh, Shanghai working class society. So that was still kind of the dominant form of dancing um, in, in the 1990s. But the youth of Shanghai were being increasingly drawn to these discos because they were seeing uh, this old, you know, social, these partnered dances as kind of old fashioned, you know, this is not what the young Westerners were doing anymore. That's what their grandparents were doing. And nobody wants to do what their grandparents were doing. So, so they really, you know, that the discos became these uh, great attractors for Shanghai's youths. And, and they started getting sucked into that culture as well. And yeah. yeah and, uh, and another thing to, even though they were expensive, uh, discos always gave out a lot of free tickets. So uh, when I when I was doing field work there, I, I I would always meet these young people who had no money at all, but they they always knew somebody working in the club, and they could always get free tickets. And these would be given out uh, largely attract young women, but young men would always get some of the free tickets as well. So there would always be a group, uh, a very large group of young uh, ne'er do wells who, who who lived in the clubbing culture pretty much for free. So the chapter also, in, in addition to introducing us to some of these spaces and some of these halls, it talks about a, an important change in clubbing design, right, where people are squeezed into smaller and smaller spaces. Um, so there's a really fascinating way that this chapter contributes to this um, tracing of the spaces of the Shanghai um, nightscapes and nightlife in a really interesting way. Now, by the end of the chapter, dancing becomes secondary to drinking in these clubs. And that actually really nicely brings us into what's happening next. Chapter 5 looks at the development of bar cultures. And the chapter shows how, in the words of the book, the proliferation of drinking subcultures contributed to the making of Shanghai as a multi-ethnic and multicultural uh, city. 
So the chapter weaves together two stories, and I'll ask you to talk um, just a little bit about at least one of these. So the first story that the chapter identifies kind of right at the beginning is the normalization and localization of the foreign space of the bar. Now this, uh, as you um, describe here, involved a kind of transformation in the relationship to drinking itself. So let's talk about that. Um, perhaps, James, do you want to start us off in talking about this normalization and localization of the bar and the way this kind of helps us understand the way the relationship to drinking changed? Right. So the, I think the bar, when we start out our story and, and, and based on the sources that we had and also interviews, uh, uh, you know, people saw the bar as a, as a foreign place, as a place that, that really, the first bars in Shanghai, and I think they really were foreign places, they were, they were little bitty bars, largely on a Japanese model, if anything, that were opened up near hotels for the foreign businessmen who were staying in those hotels, and they would go to these tiny little bars, and they would talk to, a, to, to the women who worked in the bars, sort of bar hostesses. And so this is the kind of scene that you would see, in, it would have seen in Tokyo at the time, or, or, or Taiwan at the time. And for Shanghainese people, these were places that were uh, very foreign, very overpriced, um, in which women were seen as sort of sex workers, and in which, uh, you know, good women didn't go. So, so it was a, in a way, it was quite a challenge, I think, to take one of these places and turn it into something that, 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 that women would find acceptable, that, that people would uh, – that, and also the, the, in the bar, the fact is, is that you would go there and drink without food for, for, for Shanghainese people. The idea of, of drinking, standing at a bar, spending a lot of money for a, for a drink without a meal was a, was a totally foreign idea. And if they ever got their hands on a bottle of imported liquor, which people did as gifts, typically they would just put it on their shelf in their home and, and people would just sort of would, would treat it as a kind of a cargo from, from abroad, something to admire, but not necessarily something to indulge in. So all of this changes and, and there's a process of localization in which bars become very familiar uh, in which bars become cheaper, in which uh, women are brought into the bars as customers, in which de- interacting with foreigners is now normalized, and in which drinking uh, Western-style liquor, wine, imported beers, cocktails, all of these things are introduced to people in a, in a multitude of subcultures to the point that bars have, over time, become a very everyday part of the urban landscape. Andrew, did you want to add anything? Well, what I would add, and, and this is not necessarily something that we highlight in the book, but it's certainly in there in that chapter, is uh, the influence of, um, say, you know, Japanese and Taiwanese and Koreans who did have a bar culture, which you know, uh, you know, which might be an, con- constructed as an amalgam of of uh, you know Western bar culture. Um, but also some traditional Asian practices of, of drinking. So it's not like, you know, we're not saying that drinking was foreign to Chinese society, but certainly in the 1980s when bars uh, started to really started to come into the urban landscape um, as a commercial space, that, that was uh, quite novel um, in the context of socialist Shanghai at that period. Um, but some of the earliest bars were really catering to the overseas Asian communities, the Japanese, the the, uh, the Taiwanese, and so on. Um, but they were drinking they were drinking Western alcohol, as 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 anybody knows who's who spent some time in Japan. Whiskey is extremely popular here, um, and, and those were kinds of brands of you know those were styles and brands of liquor that were quite foreign to Chinese people 
at that time, mm-hmm. although they would have been familiar with them in the in the 1930s and 40s. Um, so yeah, so the the bar culture really came in, and and it not only introduced um, new stu- new new kinds and uh, and brands of liquor, um, but but also new forms of sociability and community formation. As as James said, it really was. Um, part and parcel of this uh, cosmopolitan project in Shanghai that was launched really in the 1990s. I mean, it really took off in the 1990s with the, with the government opening up much more to foreign investment, um, with large communities of, of settlers coming in from overseas, uh, from other Asian countries and from the West. Uh, the bar culture really became entrenched and it became localized. In in you know Shanghai society as well, uh, so that's the you know we describe that process in quite a lot of detail in in that chapter. So the chapter um, talks a lot about the kind of emergence and proliferation of um, very specific kinds of bars that cater to specific kinds of taste cultures, as you describe here, interest groups, um, international migrant communities in the city, and also musical communities. And there's a whole chapter chapter six, um, that looks at one of the Shanghai bar scenes as a space of social interaction among patrons, but also performers of jazz and blues. And so I just want to, we won't have time to really talk at much length um, about this, but I just want to highlight chapter six for listeners who might be particularly interested in the history of jazz and blues as it intersects um, with this story. Um, Now, you talk about a couple of institutions in particular in this chapter, and one of them sounds just super fascinating to me, so I'm going to ask you to talk very briefly about it. This is the Jay-Z Club. It sounds like the coolest place to be, frankly, if you were in Shanghai at this time. Um, Andrew, can you say a little bit about the Jay-Z Club? Like, what uh, is this really as cool as it sounds like it was? Absolutely. I, I, I'm a huge <laughs> fan of the Jay-Z Club. So I hope that comes out in the book. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> but, no, I, I, can, I cannot say enough about the Jay-Z Club and, um, and its, its owner, uh, Ren Yuqing, who is actually a, he's from Beijing. And, uh, but his, his uh, father is from Shanghai. So he came back to Shanghai um, he came back to Shanghai and set up this club. He was a musician to begin with. He plays bass. Um, but he decided in, in the year 2004, he opened this club, and it was, a, it was a club run by musicians for musicians. That was the idea. And I was there when the club first opened, and it was quite a big deal for the musicians because up until then, they didn't really have a place to, for their own. They were kind of, you know, they were working in other bars uh, where they were contracted, but the focus was on the drinking. And it wasn't, you know, you know, the music was meant to uh, lure people into the bar to drink, and it was kind of accompanying the drinking. So this was really the first club where they could they could really showcase the art of jazz, and it also became a venue for setting up other projects as well. So um, Ren and uh, some of the other musicians that became involved in the club also set up a school, the Jay Z School, where they where they teach jazz. It's the first dedicated school for teaching jazz, as far as I know, in all of China um, in that period. And it starts in the, in the you know, in, uh, 2005, 2006, around that time. And then they set up the Jay-Z Festival, which has been going on for at least over 10 years now. And uh, that is the probably the most important jazz festival in China today. 
that's been ongoing and they bring uh, international, you know, performers and, and, and big names in jazz to Shanghai to perform. Um, so, so the, the Jay's, the influence of the Jay-Z club goes way beyond the club itself, but the, the club itself is, is a fascinating place. And, and, you know, I've spent many, many nights there. Um, but the, the, you know, it's, it's one of those places where the focus really is on the music. I mean, there are spaces you can, you can go to upstairs where, where you can drink and hang out with your friends but a lot of people do go to the club to to listen to the bands, and they get to know the the, the musicians. The musicians hang out in the bar. Um, basically, anybody who's in the jazz and blues scene in Shanghai uh, goes to that club, especially at you know late at night, and hangs out at the bar, and they get to know each other. Uh, so it really is a fascinating place, and and people, you know, musicians from all over the world are converging there. So um, this sounds really fascinating, and I would love to talk about it more. I hope Jay-Z is actually listening to this. I'm sure he's an avid listener to the new books in East Asian <laughs> Studies podcast. So Beyonce and Jay-Z, when you hear this interview, you need to go to Shanghai, um, or you, at least you need to read this part of the book, and then we could have a picture of Jay-Z reading about the Jay-Z Club, and the <laughs> world would explode. Um, you heard it here. You heard it here. So, But we have to talk about sex. So um, the next chapter gives us an opportunity to do that. And uh, James, I know this is, um, at least in part, your area of specialty in terms of what you study. Um, and so I'd love to hear a little bit about this from you. Now, Chapter 7 looks at Shanghai nightlife as, um, in the words of the book, a changing panorama of sexual scenes and sexual fields. And this chapter focuses on four scenes that collectively tell a story about how urban sexualities in the Shanghai Nightscape or diversifying. So these four scenes include um, a, a scene about dancing with a modern girl. There's a scene that takes us into social dance halls as a changing uh, kind of sexual scene in the 1990s. There's a description of eroticism in clubbing. And there's a description of what the chapter calls the making of a nightlife neighborhood. So James, what for you is um, perhaps the most exciting of these scenes, and can you um, talk to us a little bit about it as a way of opening up what you think is um, kind of the most important stuff going on in this uh, this chapter in this part of the book? Well, for me, I, I think all of these are, are fascinating scenes, and in some ways, that's the the point of framing it as scenes because um, I feel that um, a lot of writing about having come out of the sexuality studies, a lot of a lot of writing about sexual history. Um, kind of writes about it in a, in a linear way. I mean, there's a before, a middle, and, and things sort of continue along, and, and there's a, a gradual opening up or a sexual revolution, and there's a sense that whatever was created sort of continues on into the future. But in, in, in through nightlife, what I think you see is that sometimes scenes open up, things happen, uh, subcultures develop, people uh, develop a sexual culture, and then then it disappears, or it, or it, it or largely disappears. And uh, perhaps one good example of that story is is really the ballroom dance hall. So we, we, Andrews, we talked about this already. They were, in the middle 1990s, there were 1,500 dance clubs in Shanghai. Uh, the city government kept statistics then, so it's easy to find this. And uh, probably 100 of those were discos, and the rest were these uh, social dance halls. And this, this when I got there, I, I, I was looking for youth culture. And, and what I found in the middle of the 1990s, to some extent, was youth culture, but largely was a middle-aged culture. People in their, certainly people in their 30s, not, not in their teens, and um, and these are a lot of them were married. And, and one of the things that 
really flourished in the 1990s amongst working class people. And I, I, use, I think people who really often were people working in factories or people who were just recently laid off from factories because factory work was rapidly disappearing and downsizing Shanghai in the 1990s. So these were in Chinese, these people who had lost their jobs and they were going and they had just a little bit of money. And, and these places were very cheap. So they would go there and you would have there. There was this culture really of extramarital eroticism that developed in these places. And people would uh, people would go without their husbands and wives and dance with other people's husbands and wives. And for me, this was um, this really was a fascinating scene because it was not the, the scene of rich men, you know, paying for young women's company. It wasn't young, unmarried people dating, but it was really middle aged people finding companionship with other people. And uh, this scene, I think, to some extent, uh, disappeared with the with the vanishing of these clubs. And so I would say that many nightlife sexual scenes flourish and then they they're either they transform into something really completely different with the changing nature of the social spaces or they disappear if that type of place goes away. Andrew, did you have a particular scene that um, you're most interested in that you'd like to talk about a little bit for us? Well, uh, you know, it, I, I didn't uh, I didn't experience those social dance halls that that James frequented during his dissertation uh, field research. Um, my experiences were all with the the discos and and the dance clubs, and so that's what I became more familiar with. <clears throat> One thing that that always uh, fascinated me was how um, how these clubs kind of navigated um, the world of prostitution in Shanghai, which is a very large world, or at least it was. I mean, you could say to some extent it's become it's become much more controlled over the past ten years or so. Um, but how they, you know, how clubs kind of controlled. Um, and and kind of utilize the world of prostitution in, in their clubs. So you would have spaces in in clubs like Park Ninety Seven where um, women who were engaged in prostitution would hang out, usually at the bars. And then you would have, um, but they, but you know, this club would be full of white collar women who were just there to have fun. So it was a real mix of pe- of of people, especially women with different motivations, different socioeconomic backgrounds who are all kind of mixing and mingling in this space. And then the question of how the club managers and also how the authorities kind of uh, controlled, um, you know, women's sexuality. I mean, that's that's a topic that fascinated me ever since I, you know, started researching um, Shanghai in the 1920s and 30s because, you know, it goes back to the nationalist government and its uh, campaigns against dancing and, and why these very patriarchal governments always feel that dance halls are a great threat to society. And it's not just the Chinese phenomenon. You see this in the West as well and in Japan and in other other, other countries. Um, so I, I think, yeah, looking, looking at um, the ways that sexuality are expressed um, but also kind of the, mon- the monetization of sexuality in these clubs has been a fascinating area of research for me. Now, we don't have that much time before we have to come to our conclusion, but I want to make sure that we have just a little bit of time to talk about what's happening in Chapter 8. This is a chapter called From Interzones to Transzones. Now, the transformation um, of Shanghai Nightscapes that's 
chronicled here and described here in this chapter is a transformation um, from what you call an interzone in the 1930s. Um, and in this context, in the words of the book, people of various nationalities mixed in a common setting but stayed largely socially segregated. So from an interzone in the 1930s like this to a transzone in the 1990s in which social and cultural mixing among races and nationalities was commonplace. So, James, could you talk a little bit about this move from interzone to transzone? For you, what's most important for us to understand about this? And also, um, can you talk a little bit about interzone and transzone as kind of conceptual tools here? Why are they particularly useful for you? So, uh, the... Um the interzone idea is one we borrowed from Kevin Mumford. Kevin Mumford. Yeah, Mumford. I was saying, I was forgetting his first name, Kevin Mumford. And, and he uses it to talk about the United States and, and, the, and the sort of uh, black and tan clubs. Uh, uh, these, these clubs where white people and black people mingled and got to know each other, but, but still went back to really a segregated society in the, in the, um, in the early 20th century in the U.S., and this is a term we use by analogy to Shanghai to talk about the 1930s in Shanghai, uh, and and also really the 1980s in Shanghai, where you have these these small these. Especially, so if we go to the 1980s, you have a nightlife zone that's emerging, but Chinese people and foreign people really don't have um, uh, very many chances to get to know each other socially. So you can go to a bar, you might hang out with a bar girl, but there's a, a vast gulf between people. And certainly this was the case in the in the pre-war period where. For example, rates of intermarriage in Shanghai were very low. So even though you had a sexual scene in the 1930s and 40s nightlife in Shanghai in which uh, foreign men and, and foreign women could meet Chinese men and women, you would have had a, a very uh, low rate of, of uh, permanent relationships coming out of that, uh, certainly in terms of marriage. And by the 1990s, this really changes. And so one of the – it put simply, I guess, this just transformation into a trans zone is one in which – Really, what we see are people actually engaging with each other in all sorts of ways in which they become close friends, they become business partners, they become lovers, they, they get married. Um, and sort of the, the fluidity of social relations increases and the kinds of barriers that, that existed before then, which were both, I think, cultural and political and also economic, have, have disappeared to some extent. And it doesn't mean, though, that people are all – that this is some sort of an egalitarian – uh, mishmash. It's it's actually highly stratified, but it's no longer stratified according to the the old sort of colonial relations of of white and Asian. But now it's really a much more of a class based society in which the you know the rich and the beautiful have a, have a much better time than the poor and the and the less attractive. Andrew, did you want to speak to this at all? Well, yeah. I, I mean, just uh, building on what James is saying. Um, we're, we certainly, and, and we don't want uh, the reader or the listener to get the wrong impression that this is a utopian environment where everybody is, is on a level playing field. This, these are still contact zones, although the dynamics have changed. I, and we've seen this very visibly since the 1990s. The role of the foreigner has changed quite a lot in the club scene. And whereas foreigners were once kind of exalted customers and did have a, 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 a you know purchasing power that that most local Chinese did not. Um, uh, nowadays, the, the the tables have really turned, and and people in China tend to be, in fact, much much more well off than the probably the average young foreigner who's going to a bar. 
uh, who's you know teaching English or a, you know a student learning Chinese. Um, so the, really, the tables have turned, and, and I think foreigners have become more of a uh, sexual spectacle in in the nightlife economy, but also servants in the nightlife economy. You see more and more. Uh, cases of of foreigners working in these clubs as dancers, as performers, as um, bartenders, mixologists—you name it—and and so I think the role of the foreigner, um, it, you know, foreigners still play kind of a prominent symbolic role in the nightlife space, but the but the the socioeconomic uh, status of the foreigner has really changed over time. And so has the status of the the mainland Chinese customer. Now, because remember, in the 1990s, most of these customers were mo- most of the the big spenders in the nightlife scene were fr- were overseas Chinese or foreigners. And so, and and nowadays, some of the biggest spenders are mainland Chinese. Um, so that dynamic has really changed as well, along with this, you know, the the rapid economic development of China and this uh, phenomenon of the nouveau riche in China. So, you know, that that goes back to what we were talking about in the club scene with these VIP spaces becoming very important. Um, and so, yeah, there's a, there's a lot of dynamism to the scene. And then, of course, sexuality is always related to power. And, and to economic, social social status, but also economic power. So the sexual dynamics change as well. So thank you both. We're now um, pretty much at the end, or at least um, at the conclusion of our conversation. Um, and there's a whole lot more about the book that we haven't had a chance to talk about, including a whole chapter that closes the book um, by looking at the ways that interactions between state, society, and the economy um, can contribute to the development of Shanghai's nightlife neighborhoods. So there's a lot more to talk about, and there's a lot more that listeners will find when they actually have a chance to pick up and browse through the book, um, including Jay-Z um, and hopefully Beyonce. So Jay-Z and Beyonce, there's a lot more there. But in the meantime, um, is there anything else about the book that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Um, James? Well, I, I think there we, we covered a lot of stuff, so I don't have anything in particular that I really need to throw out right now. Okay. Andrew? Well, one of the questions that, that comes up is, um, where are you in the book? And, and I think James and I like to point out that we made a very deliberate choice to kind of remove ourselves from the narrative as ethnographers, to kind of keep ourselves in, in the background um, we start in the introduction with a with a personal experience with the two of us going out for a night on the town and what we personally observed and so on. But most of the book is told through the voices of the, the hundreds of people that we interviewed, people of all age ranges from the teens up through a 94-year-old jazz musician, um, people of, of various sexual orientations, uh, various ethnicities, nationalities and so on so we want so we try to capture the multiplicity of voices that goes into the making of of cosmopolitan nightlife and andrew now that the book is out what are you currently working on what's inspiring you right now well i did a project a few years ago on um the rock scene the rock music club scene in beijing and I made a film out of that called Down Indie Rock in the PRC, along with another uh, American friend of mine named Judd Wilmot. 
And uh, I've been screening that for a couple of years now, and I decided to take those materials and, and really, I, I had I had the basis for a book there. And this is going to be a much more personalized ethnography. I've decided to really put myself in that book. <laughs> so it's called Beijing Noise. But I could not have uh, written this book. You know, I'm in the middle of it now. Uh, I could not have even conceived of writing this book had it not been for the experience of working with James and learning the techniques of ethnography. So that's what I'm working on now. Rock on. James, what are you working on now? What's inspiring you after the book's out? So in some ways, my, my project also is a, I have a couple of projects. One is uh, related to this book, and it's on uh, really an ethnography of, of expatriates in Shanghai. But the close, uh, the, the thing I'm spending, I'm more passionate about at the moment is is a project on um, on food and food scenes and restaurant scenes in in, in Shanghai. So I'm, it's kind of a Shanghai foodscapes project where I interview chefs, uh, customers, uh, looking at the at the at the um, changing nature of the dining scene and culinary landscape of Shanghai. So both of these sound awesome. Um, so I'm going to let you go and work on those projects so that I can talk to you again when they're done and interview you all over again. In the meantime, thank you both. It's really been a pleasure. Um, and thanks so much for making the time. Thank you, Carla. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we will see you next time.